So, uh, congratulations on the uh, on the album and the and the tour. Thank you. Do you ever uh, do you ever get tired of? Obviously, you don't get tired of playing, but do you ever get tired of touring? The the whole grind of it all. Well, you know, when you're in the middle of it, there there's always going to be uh, a day or two where the travel is uh, taxing. You know, it's just you have a 17 hour drive to get from Spain to Finland, and there's a you know an eight hour ferry ride tagged onto that. Those days can be kind of uh, you know difficult. They they kind of knock you for a loop. Um, it's best for me, you know, if we just keep moving. Uh, I, I like uh, traveling by bus and because um, uh, it's more private and, and you know you get more time to sleep in between each show and I, that seems to be the most important thing is just to, to have like a cave to crawl into between performances uh, and then you can keep going and stay very focused on your personal musicianship and the show and relating to the band um, but yeah sometimes those, those it seems like every two weeks you get one travel day that's a bit too long, <laughs> you know, and, and it'll get to you. But most of the time, it's um, touring for me is a lot of fun. I, I love uh, performing live. I like uh, being out with the guys and having a. It's a simplified lifestyle. You know what I mean? It's not like being at home where you're doing, uh, you know, writing and press and practicing and gear, and then you're doing everything that has to do with home life. It's actually more complicated. So the your Shockwave Supernova character is basically looking back. This is like a concept album, and he's realizing that he has to change. How did the idea for the for the concept come about? You know, it was uh, building uh, over the course of the Unstoppable Momentum tour, where I started realizing that uh, you know I was playing with my teeth a lot, and uh, I, I started to think you know these. These are the kind of things that happen when you're on tour for a long time. Um, you know, they they you start to do things sort of automatically because they really work from a performance point of view. Uh, you know, playing guitar with your teeth, running around, and, you know, doing a solo on your knees, running into the audience, just stuff that you would normally do that you know is fun to do, yeah. and uh, and the audience uh, loves to to see a performer kind of go for it but of course if you if anybody out there has ever done that they know that their dentist will tell them hey stop doing that <laughs> it's not good for your teeth so, so we were towards the end of the tour actually we were playing in Singapore it was our last show and I walked out on stage and I was telling myself now don't do that anymore that's ridiculous that's the last night of the tour you should put that to bed with the end of this tour but uh, a few minutes into the show I was already doing it and I was doing everything that I thought was kind of, uh, you know, that it's sort of, sort of, uh, I'd, I'd accumulated, let's say, through the through the two years of touring. I was just suddenly I was doing all of it, and uh, so when the tour was, when the show was over, and I was hanging out, vacationing in Singapore, I started thinking, well, wouldn't it be funny if it was a real crisis of, uh, you know, um, psychology, you know, that I had this personality crack where there was this other version of me that 
Cat really wanted to take over and play with his teeth all the time and play behind his back and wear shiny clothes and, and call himself something stupid like Shockwave Supernova <laughs> so that everyone would pay attention to him. And I, I basically, you know, sort of um, fed this daydream that there would be this uh, over-the-top side of, of a performer split personality that wanted to take over and be the more and make the, the flamboyant performer the main dominant uh, personality of this person and I, I was sort of bolstered uh, in this daydream by the movie How to Get Ahead in Advertising a British film from quite a few years ago I don't know if you'd ever seen it no it's about an uh, you should look it up and watch it it's really insanely funny and um, it, it's about an ad ex- executive who has the uh, uh, unfortunate uh, task of coming up with a campaign to sell boil cream uh, in England. And um, during the course of it, some very unusual, strange things happen. It's, it, it's like a madcap comedy, sci- comedy sci-fi adventure. And um, uh, But uh, I don't want to spoil the film for you. <laughs> But let's just say I was thinking about that movie and I thought, oh, wouldn't it be funny if, in fact, you know, there was this character, Shockwave Supernova, and he just wanted to take over Joe. You know, I just wanted to say, you know what, Joe, I'm the new guy. You are the, you're the minimal personality that I bring out when I need to write a good song or, you know, hit the right notes. But, you know, 99% of the time, it's me from now on, you know. And um, so then I, I imagine, well, an interesting concept because then you can write a record based on the two personalities arguing with each other and since I don't have lyrics I thought well they're going to argue their case in songs right. each song is going to be like someone saying look what I did for you you know and, or you can't get rid of me because look what I can do or how about this memory and that memory and all the things we did together um, and then the, the album ends with um uh, both of them saying goodbye to all the negative aspects of, of Shockwave, of this of this crazy alter ego, and they sort of become absorbed in each other and, and uh, uh, are determined to turn into something new, to evolve into a better person, a better performer. And um, so anyway, it, it was a concept that really helped me write, that inspired me to, to uh, try to uh, create a record that was, know better than anything I'd ever done before but I wanted to make sure that people didn't really need to know about it and that you know they could you know needle drop anywhere on the album and they could enjoy the music it didn't have to be enjoyed in context or of the story or in sequence Um, so uh, in that way the concept was more of a composer's device nice so if I could talk to Shockwave himself how would he feel about the real Joe Satriani Oh, he'd probably say, oh, that guy's practicing all the time. He's too dedicated to be, you know, <laughs> ready for prime time. <laughs> he'd probably say, I wish the guy would get some more clothes. Enough with the black T-shirts, you know. <laughs> nice. Is it, is it difficult separating the, the touring life when you come back off the road um, and settle back into home life? Is it is it a difficult adjustment, or is it something you just kind of easily go back into? Well... It's easy for me. I mean, my um, I've, I've had a pretty disciplined um, touring lifestyle. Um, I, most of the time, I travel with uh, my family. Now, now that my son's grown up, uh, it's just my wife and myself. So, 
um, it's not like I go out there and, and I totally lose touch with the reality and then come home and have you know three months of wondering where I am or who I am. <laughs> I'm pretty much the same person. We like you know we live an artistic lifestyle on and off the road, so it, it doesn't really change that much. I'll tell you what is difficult is shaking the physical feeling um, that um, you're not moving anymore. Um, and that's the thing, you really get used to, you know, walking on a bus at two in the morning and you're, you know, your body is moving for eight or nine hours. Yeah. You're constantly moving every day. There's a new hotel room, a new venue, um, and there's a lot of movement. So you get home and suddenly things are a little quiet and you notice there's not a lot of moving around. <laughs> And it's a physical, you know, it's an odd sensation. Let's put it that way. It seems like it takes a few weeks, and then suddenly you go, "Wow, this is great!" Like I don't have to pack and unpack. I can, you know, I can actually sit down and get something done. You know, <laughs> so um, nice. uh, yeah, it's it's more like that. But yeah, like I said, because I'm not, uh, I'm pretty much a dedicated musician, and uh, I really like to focus on the shows. It, not like um, there are things I do on the road that I don't allow myself to do at home. It's pretty much I get to do whatever I want, wherever I am. So right. I'm lucky in that respect. So with the songs, when you take them into the studio, how how important is your relationship between the, the uh, producer? I mean, you know, as far as... Well, I like, um, you know, that's a good question because I, I like working with a co-producer. Um, I've had... Um, I've done uh, 15 studio albums plus the, the two with Chicken Foot and but all in all it's really I think there's only four producers that I've, I've worked with the two Johns brothers Andy and and uh, Glenn Johns uh, uh, Mike Fraser and then of course John Cunaberti who's uh, been probably my main collaborator going back even before I was a solo artist when he was the live and studio sound engineer for a band called The Squares that I was in from late 79 to about the end of 84 yeah. and um, so I've known John forever he knows my playing inside and out in a variety of styles and he's been either the co-producer and engineer or just the engineer or just the mix engineer mastering engineer he's you know he's got a lot of talents and has worn a lot of hats and, and as far as being involved in my project so um, I like um, working with people who feel very comfortable telling me that what I just played sucked and I should do it again <laughs> um, or telling me that they don't like the song anyway you know and you know you need someone who can be truly honest and point out you know what you might be missing um, it's very difficult to be the artist and the producer because it, I mean it's not physically difficult what it is is you lose objectivity and if you're if you've got an instrument around your back and you're having a moment how do you know whether it's actually going to be good for the record? Right. It, it may be great for your, your life and for that moment in your musical development, but just completely pointless for the album <laughs> or the song being worked on. So it takes someone else who's sort of separated to look at you and go, hey, that's great, but sorry, you know, it doesn't work here. Um, and then the opposite is true. When you're not paying attention, when you think just played something that you could play a million times you need someone to say hey what you just played is so special and I can't believe you did it and you'll probably never do it again so I'm not erasing it you know <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it, it, you know it's good and I, I bounced uh, concepts off like this whole thing about Shockwave Supernova I actually 
you know, as I was first asking my wife if I was nuts to try it, and then asking my manager, of course, I asked John Cunaberti, um, who was going to be co-producing and engineering the project, if I was crazy, and if he thought it was something interesting that might add to our, um, let's say, our planning of the record. Um, and so it was important for me to get like a green light from these people who are close to me, who know me, and who wouldn't mince words if they thought it was a stupid idea. Right. Nice. So how many how many songs are you going to be playing from the from the new album on the on the tour? Yeah, good question. Uh, I haven't really added them up. I know that um, we we started with um, we started with a set list that was. Um, pretty close to uh, what we were doing in Europe in the beginning of the tour because we, we've already sort of been on tour so um, we we thought well these things are working so what can we do to make it different to make it more intense how many more can we put in there and I think uh, I think I've got a set list around here somewhere let me see 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 12, 13, 14, somewhere between 25 and 30 songs um, and then uh, I hate to tell you that it's etched in stone because you know by the third gig we're already you know playing an extra song or you know we've switched some songs out but right. um, you um, you know we're not going to play for four hours <laughs> it is after all a lot of guitar notes so um, I've always thought that it's important to just play all the great stuff and play it really well rather than just throw everything out there to see what happens. So, yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm really keen to bring material to the show that the band, the live band, really shines on. And uh, this band is pretty amazing. Marco Miniman on drums and Brian Beller on bass guitar. Those are two, two of the three guys from the band, the Aristocrats. And of course, Mike Neely, who's been uh, touring and making records with me for quite a few years now. Uh, all three of these guys are geniuses and they're great writers as well as uh, performers and uh, I'm, I'm always keen to make sure that I'm bringing in material that they're excited about that they can do something crazy with that I never thought of before so they can elevate the sound of the, either the most recent music or the music that you know um, I put out when they were just little kids or something like that you know so um, it's important to me to keep that, uh, that sort of enthusiasm going on stage uh, from the band and it just makes us uh, always happy to get on stage uh, this is one of those bands where we're always smiling and laughing and just having a good time seeing who can you know play crazier than the other guy at night after night it's just uh, it's a really great vibe out there um, so yeah I, I think that number somewhere between 25 and 30 is probably going to be enough you know, a lot of people don't know when we when we pull into town and we're playing a theater, there's a curfew imposed upon us, and so we can't just play as long as we like. We actually have to stop. Right. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. So, they, they basically throw us out, you know, yeah. come 11 o'clock, they want everybody off, you know. Everybody out. So is there a chance then that we're going to hear um, San Francisco Blue? I don't know. Um, I know that we, we rehearsed it uh, at the beginning of the, you know, the, tours rehearsals and uh, we'll be having uh, some more rehearsals uh, prior to the first show in Seattle so we'll throw that out there and see if anyone's got some interesting ways of working that into the set but um, 
Nice. Yeah, definitely yeah. Uh, one of my favorites. It's a, it's a, such a, uh, uh, a, a sort of a modern take on a, on a blues sound. And uh, uh, a, a lot of people, when they go for blues like that, they really try to imitate um, other blues greats. And, and I often think from my perspective, it's kind of an odd thing that in some styles of music, you, you're forced to be original and look down upon to, to show your influences. And then in the blues community, it's just the opposite. It's like, you know, you become a star when you sh- when you can copy the greats and show people in every song, look, I can play just like that guy. It's a funny thing, isn't it? Um, it is, actually. I mean, I, the song <laughs> is amazing. I mean? it's, it's like, it doesn't happen like in EDM music or, or other forms of pop music. It, it, it's just, I just think it's really funny. But um, So when I went to play that thing, I thought, I'm just going to... I'm not going to try to show people that I can play exactly like Albert King or Stevie Ray Vaughan or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I had to tell my story, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, I, I love the song. I mean, I'm supposed to, I'm a guitar player, so I'm supposed to like all the shredding fast stuff, but my heart is really with the blues, so that song in particular just, just really stood out to me from the album. I think that's an excellent song. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I, I had a wonderful time working on that, and... Uh, and uh, I'm glad that it made it to the record and, and uh, it's out there. Uh, you know, when you when you make records, it's, I think it's a bad idea to be to think in a timely manner because you can never it, once you think you're being clever, you know you, you're probably wrong. So yeah. it's better just to put things out there that you really believe in that are close to your heart and say, okay, maybe not this month or this year. Maybe six years from now, someone will go, "Wow, that is a really cool song," and that's what it's really about. It's not really about trends, you know. It's uh, it's about playing from the heart and, and just putting it out there and, and believing in it. Right. Now you must get a lot of um, gadgets from different companies and different new products. And I mean, do you have the time to experiment with everything that people send you, or do you stick with what you you know? No, we uh, spend quite a lot of time, uh, my partners and myself, developing products, some of which get to market really quickly. Um, others take forever. Um, you know, you mentioned San Francisco Blue. The sound of the guitar is actually, um, what you're hearing is this prototype to a, uh, a, a prototype of um, a Satriani Marshall combo amp that we've been working on for quite a while, over a year, and uh, it is a 1x12, 20-watt, all-tube combo amplifier with three channels in it, and an effects loop and reverb and noise gate, um, and it can be stepped all the way down to below one watt, um, and I had it in the studio at the time, and we... You know, a lot of the stuff that I do uh, on guitar very often gets recorded at my home studio and I record it direct and then we get to the big studio where we have the other musicians come in and we use John Cuniberti's device called the Reamp to take uh, a DI recorded uh, guitar and send it back out to an amplifier and then re-record it. Um, this is a great way of um, being able to check out how your guitar would sound through, let's say, 20 different amps now that you've got the drums and the bass the way you just like them. Huh. And um, 
and and it's something we've been doing for for about two decades now. Um, it's a great, it really is a lot of fun. And uh, the day we that we had uh, all the guitars done uh, and the song was up, San Francisco Blue, in, in the studio we were at Twenty Fifth Street Studios in Oakland. We just started running those guitars out into all the amps, and I had about fifteen vintage Fenders, and I had the new Marshalls and everything. But this Marshall combo prototype sounded so good. And so that's what you're hearing in San Francisco Blue, is that amp being used to create a lot of different uh, guitar textures. Nice, nice. So on that note, kind of like, because I have like a, I have a Line 6 um, an amp with the, the HD150 head, which comes with preset, you know, artist signature sounds. So how do you view the kind of digital revolution as far as like, you know, an upcoming guitarist to kind of like plug in and get some of your sound, but not, you know, not all of it. How do you feel about that? Does that help or does that hurt the... Well, you know, you could look at it almost like um, car uh, racing, right? You know, there's the, the people at the forefront of driving technology um, and, and, and I suppose that the, uh, the, the sport of driving and all of the companies that make things for cars reach their their height uh, when you know if you if you're looking at um, the top of the line uh, car racing Formula One uh, Grand Prix um, this is where all of the technology all of the ideas all of the tolerances have got to be at their best now you and I don't drive like that and we certainly don't need those machines but that those that focus finally sort of gets distilled down into a consumer where when we step into our, you know, whatever, our Ford, our Chevy, our Audi, whatever it is you're driving, that uh, we benefit from those people who are, you know, pushing the envelope uh, in that particular industry. So uh, in, in some ways, you look at someone who's playing stadiums all around the world and they've got a, they need a big sounding fat amp and they need, you know, maybe four or five of them in a very complicated switching system because they've got you know, 20 albums out and they've got to play this career retrospective every time they step in front of 100,000 people. That that kind of a rig is completely unnecessary for someone who plays with their friends on weekends, right. you know, or maybe does a, you know, a club date, you know, uh, once a week or twice a week or plays at the local church or something like that. So what that person needs, though, is sort of like a summation of what all these pros are doing around the world. And in that way, the, the digital revolution has really helped sort of democratize the, that kind of tone thing. So if, you, you know, if you're looking to sound like Angus Young, but you can't afford eight Marshall stacks turned up to 125 decibels, <laughs> you know, and you've got no place to actually do it, um, then it does help if you've got a little 10 watt amp that's got an Angus Young setting on it. I mean, why not, you know? It's, so. I think that the, uh, the, the digital revolution uh, has really served that need very well because it, that it can sort of capture in a kind of a snapshot way um, the, the, uh, the attitude, the tone, you know, the general sound of iconic uh, guitar riffs or iconic players. Um, I don't think it's ever going to... Uh, you know, be the thing of choice for somebody uh, who's a professional. Um, but uh, I have to say,
say that, you know, pros do all sorts of things that are that kind of are the opposite of what you would think. You know, like you you ask somebody, wow, that song, you know, the guitar is so big. What is that? And they go, oh, that's an, uh, you know, it's a, a pod, a Line 6 pod that I got at a flea market. And uh, it's not what you think, you know, right. but it just happened to work. Yeah. Um, and some people might say, boy, that little guitar sound is so funky. It sounds like it's coming out of a radio. What is it? And they go, well, actually, it's my Marshall stack. But, <laughs> you know, the engineer kind of squished it and made it sound small on purpose or something. So, yeah. Uh, recording is a bit of uh, an illusion, you know. Things that you think are loud, or maybe were not recorded loud, and vice versa. And um, it's really difficult to tell now because of the dynamics of um, the way people hear music is um, is very different. And what I mean is to say is like if you're in a room with a musician, you're hearing full dynamics. In other words, there's silence and then there's a, there's a steps of volume that go all the way up to you know whatever level you can stand. Um, but most of the time, people hear music coming out of their earbuds or computers or the television, and that music has been squished. Its dynamics have been squished down to almost zero decibels. Um, modern music is is you know way down there, somewhere between none and maybe three dB of dynamic range. So. At that point, it almost doesn't matter that the amplifier used to record the guitar part had dynamics, because you never get to hear them anyway, because the whole track is squished, the drums are squished, the bass is squished, the vocals are squished. And and I think that's what a lot of modern musicians have been struggling with, is they, they get these beautiful, you know, vintage setups, and then it just gets squished down, and so they go, well, why am I lugging this stuff around? <laughs> <laughs> Why can't I just use my iPad, you know? And and sometimes that's what people do, and, and because they realize it doesn't matter if the end product is only you know three or two dB in dynamic range, then why does the, the individual signal you know need to be larger? I don't particularly agree with that, and I, I don't record thinking that today's technology is going to be the one that will be around tomorrow. So we're always recording 96k. And we're always thinking at some point, you know, the dynamic range thing will be solved and music will sound big and, and natural the way uh, it, it did at certain points. But, you know, you have to keep in mind that, you know, recorded music is really in its infancy. It hasn't been around that long. And it went from a cylinder to a god-awful platter and, um, and, you know, various versions of tape and, and of course, uh, you know, more flexible vinyl records and cassette tapes and eight-track tapes and and then uh, you know CDs and, and MP3s. I mean, just think about that. And sometimes it was good, sometimes it wasn't. Um, uh, but it never really changed the fact that people love to hear music, people love to make music, and uh, so that's what I kind of stay focused on. All right. All right. I'm going to go into something a little bit more philosophical. Uh, All right. A lot, a lot of people can, you know, we can all read and write. You know, a lot of people can write books, but only a few people get to actually write like great works of literature. Um, so you became a great guitarist. Do you feel like this has always been inside of you, or is it created by the talent that you mastered? The music. Mm, well, I gotta say, you know, if I just focus on the musicians, you know, 
viewpoint, I would I'd say that um, my experience has taught me that there's a, there are people out there that are friends of mine who have had a much easier time playing the guitar, and so I've always seen myself as someone uh, who struggles to keep up with contemporaries in terms of the physicality of playing, because it's always been hard to play, and you know, I started out as a drummer, and that didn't work out, I really wanted to play piano and saxophone, and I can't really play those very well, <laughs> and uh, so, you know, guitar and bass were the two instruments that I could actually excel at to some degree, but it takes constant practice for me, and uh, I mean, I've dedicated my life to it, and I don't think I'll, uh, there's never been one day where I thought I actually arrived at a level that I was happy with, so I'm still pushing myself and, and struggling to to reach a level of uh, competency that, that puts a smile on my face, you know, that makes me feel like, uh, you know, that I can do what some of my friends are capable of. So looking back on, on the career, um, which is basically, the album is basically looking looking back, the character's looking back, um, is there anything that you would change? Well, probably, um, the, you know, if I could go back in time and, and pull myself aside, I would I would say, don't worry about all this other, you know, bullshit. Because that's, that's what happens, you know, in the beginning of a, career or even when you're searching for one you kind of you know have anxieties about, about all sorts of things that you think are important and um, and then uh, if you're lucky enough to, to succeed and, and last a long time in the industry you look back and you go wow all that stuff was a waste of time all that worrying about this aspect of the business or that it's like why did I do that actually was a diversion from the main course which is t to try your best to write your best music and and connect with your fans everything else is just like don't worry about it you know but you do you know when you're 20 you might be more concerned about your shoes than perhaps the song you've just written <laughs> <laughs> you know it's, it's just funny or who you know or what place you go to to hang out or where you're seen or you know what the photo looks like in that magazine article. I mean, all those things, they do take up a, a lot of energy when they're happening, but in retrospect, they really don't matter. What matters is that you write music that people love, and, and then if you can do that, then everything else falls into place, and then you be, you know, all the rest of the stuff you're forgiven because we're all the same. You know, we're all just a bunch of goofballs running around. Um, everybody looks stupid eventually. <laughs> you know, whatever it is you thought was the, the right thing to wear, it, it's going to look weird eventually, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so. Nice. All right, um, last question. Uh, so let's say 5,000 years from now, aliens are digging through the ice and they discover your entire catalog to date. Uh, which song would you like them to hear first? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is a frightening concept. What <laughs> song? Wow. Well, um, I don't know. That's a good, that's a really good question. What would they want to hear first? Well, um, I don't know. I don't know. I think that's a that's a uh, that's a perfect question that the journalist should answer. Actually, to tell you the truth, <laughs> because you know once you 
you know, there's there's two ways of, of answering questions when you're getting interviewed anyway. I should let you know in, in this, you know, there's there's the serious one where somebody asks you a question like that and you immediately really try hard to come up with the answer that you truly believe in. And that can take forever. And or the, the other way is to be like David Lee Roth, which is to laugh and then turn the question around to the interviewer. <laughs> so it kind of gets you off the hook and it makes you seem like happy-go-lucky guy so um, I often remember that when when I'm doing interviews and, and the journalist uh, presses me with very intense metaphysical questions and um, my nature is to try to answer them truthfully but of course we don't have that kind of time because <laughs> it isn't my nature to do that but um, but I should in this instance I should you know answer it like David Lee Ross which is laugh and say oh you know uh, what a crazy question, you know, Brian. What's your favorite, you know? Yeah. <laughs> All of them. Yeah. Uh, there you go. <laughs> there would be a note. Dear aliens, you must listen to all oh. 15 albums yeah. <laughs> before <laughs> passing judgment on my civilization. <laughs> That's it.